earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Can I invite uh, Clara and Eleanor to come up to the front? Because in order to uh, uh, begin my message today, I'm going to uh, read a few pages from this book. And it is a children's book, so that's why I wanted the children to get a nice close look. But I want you all to remember you're children of God. And this is for everyone. So children, I need your help this morning. You see, this morning we had rather a long reading from an Old Testament prophet named Habakkuk or Habakkuk, depending on how you say it. Um, and when the adults heard it, they were, they were all thinking, what was that all about? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to read you a few pages from this book, and it's going to help us all have a little background, okay? So, first of all, children, did you know that even though in the Bible there are 66 books, they all work together to tell one great story. And this book tells that one story for children. It's called the Big Picture Story Bible. The great story is about God the creator, and the people that he made who rebelled against him, they became rebels. Do you know what a rebel is? No? Not sure? Well, if your dad were in my shoes telling this story, he might say that a rebel is someone with a hard heart. And the great story is about how God is recreating recreating a new people from the rebels by giving them new hearts. Now you've heard about Abraham, right? Yeah. So well, God began by making a great promise to Abraham and it involved a place and a people and a blessing that would spread to all the families of the earth. And after making that promise to Abraham, over the next few thousand years, God was keeping that promise. And ultimately, he is keeping that promise through Jesus. It says here, the Bible is a big book about a big God who keeps a big promise. So, a long way into the story. Here. There is a people called by God's name, 
and they're living under God's blessing in the place that God had given them. But they're still rebels. They still have hard hearts. They are ungrateful. That means when it's Thanksgiving, they don't give thanks to God. And they take for granted God's blessing that has protected them from their enemies for a very long time. They do not trust and obey God who made them. Instead, they make up their own gods and other stuff to trust and obey. Now, a prophet named Elijah, he wanted to show the people that there's only one true living God. Uh, and they need to trust and obey him. So first Elijah told some of the people to pray to the other so-called gods. And of course, nothing happened. Then Elijah prayed to the real God, and God sent fire from heaven. It says here, the people were amazed. But... Do you think this made them return to God? Yeah, you're right, Clara. No, it didn't. In this picture, we see all kinds of wicked things that they were still doing. They continued to disobey God's word. So, God punished his people by sending a ruler, this guy, his name is Shalmaneser from a faraway place called Assyria to make war on them. And many of God's people, all the people that were in the northern kingdom of Israel, were either killed or taken away. But God's people that were left were in the southern kingdom of Judah, which is where Jerusalem is. Here's a picture of Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem there was a great temple that Solomon had built to God's name. So those were still there, safe. But about a hundred years later, the God's people in the southern kingdom of Judah were ruled by a king named Zedekiah. And he did many evil things. Some of them you can see here. Um, but still, he did not think that God would punish him, even though you know, he knew what had happened to the other folks. He didn't think God would punish him. He thought to himself, didn't God promise us this land with this temple on it forever? So God sent the prophet Jeremiah to say to the king, no, you've got it wrong. But Zedekiah refused to listen. So we see in this picture here, Jeremiah, he's pleading with the king to understand how serious the situation is. But here's the king with his hard heart and his nose in the air not listening. Now, it is at this time when, when uh, 
Zedekiah and, and God's people are doing many wicked things, and, and they're not listening to Jeremiah. It's at this time that the prophet Habakkuk was talking to God. And God was telling him what was going to happen next. And in this picture, I know not all of our friends can see it, but you can see it. We get a hint of what is going to happen. Because you see out the window that there's these little black dots coming over the hill towards Jerusalem. And they kind of look like bugs, right? Look like ants or something. But they're not. Do you know what they are? Soldiers. You got it. They're soldiers. There's an army coming. But Zedekiah refused to listen. So God punished his people again by sending another king to make war on them. King Nebuchadnezzar came all the way from Babylon and he destroyed Jerusalem and he burned Solomon's temple to the ground. And he took the rest of God's people far away from the land. This was a very sad day. God's people had to leave God's place because they would not have God for their king. Do you remember when God sent Adam and Eve away from him out of the garden? Yeah. It's kind of a picture like that. Well, God was doing it again. He was sending his people out of his place because of their sin. But God's promise remains. Even though God's people were far from home, God still spoke to them. God sent more prophets. They spoke all his words and wrote them down in God's holy book. The prophet Ezekiel wrote that one day God would raise up the temple and give his people new hearts. You can look at the pictures later some more if you like. Isaiah reminded them that God's forever king would come from the family of King David. And there is Jeremiah again. He was hopeful too. He said that Israel would return home again after 70 years. So, children, here's the thing to take away from this part of God's great story. When it looks like evil is winning, God's promise remains. And it's not the end of the story yet. Look at all the more pages to come. God's promise remains, and there's more to the story. The story isn't over. There is a bigger picture. All right. So thank you for helping us out. You can go back to your seats, and I'm going to talk to everyone. Please turn in your Bibles to...
to Habakkuk chapter 2. The verses that I quoted in my opening prayer are well-known Bible verses, and they all come from Habakkuk chapter 2. Verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. These verses are often used uh, liturgically, for example, as opening sentences for morning or evening prayer in the Canadian Book of Common Prayer. But verse 4, but the righteous shall live by his faith, is a very, very well-known verse. The Apostle Paul teaches that righteousness or being right with God, comes through faith, and not by works of the law. And this teaching rests, in part, on this verse. Paul quotes it prominently in his uh, letter to the Romans, and we saw earlier this year, um, he also quotes it in his letter to the Galatians. During the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther and, and others took their leave from Paul's letters uh, to the Romans and Galatians, and they were very fond of quoting this verse. Apparently, this verse was something of a battle cry among German reformers. So the verses from Habakkuk chapter 2 are famous, but the context is not. Um, because of this, I felt uh, convicted to get into this book. And studying it has become something of a labor of love for me over the past several months. So when six weeks ago uh, Keith asked if I would preach on this Sunday, I asked if I could speak on Habakkuk. And he agreed, even though this is Thanksgiving Sunday, and Habakkuk might not seem uh, like the best choice for today, or certainly seems like an odd choice for today. Anyway, I'm very thankful uh, for the chance to speak on Habakkuk today, and I hope you will be too, because the message of Habakkuk coming to us from his place in the great story has something to say to us for our times. And that is, as I said to the children, When it looks like evil is winning, remember this, God's promise remains. And the story isn't over. There is a bigger picture. Live in faith. Our reading begins with the prophet Habakkuk standing on the walls of Jerusalem, looking out for an answer from God. And the little black dots were not visible yet. But Habakkuk knows they are coming because God has told him. And his question to God is, why? So if you look back at chapter 1 of Habakkuk, I'm just going to go through a quick summary of the dialogue that has happened already between Habakkuk and God up to this point. 
In chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, Habakkuk complains to God about his own people, the people of the southern kingdom of Judah. Their society and its leadership and legal structures are a wicked mess. And Habakkuk wants to know how long he's got to cry out to God about this before God does something about it. In verse 3, Habakkuk complains. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? And in verses 5 to 11, God responds. God is going to do something about it, but it's really going to throw Habakkuk for a loop. God says in verse 5, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. What's God doing? Verse 6 tells us he's raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. These folks are brutal, ruthless, and highly efficient. Verses uh, 6 to 11 describe this graphically. They have already made short work of Assyria, the power that had conquered the northern kingdom 100 years earlier. And they had also made short work of Egypt. These are the folks that the southern kingdom of Judah had relied upon earlier to keep Assyria at bay. Now they're going to pick off all of Judah's neighbors, the Philistines, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Kedar, Hazar, and Elam. And Judah will not be spared. God's ungrateful, rebellious, and unrepentant people will be next on the Babylonian hit list. Well, Habakkuk is reeling. Judah is bad, as he has been complaining. But the Babylonians are so, so much worse. So in verses 12 to 17, Habakkuk makes his second complaint to God. And in particular, in verse 13, he says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, in other words, you, God, who are righteous, you who are just, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? So here we are back at the start of chapter 2 with Habakkuk saying, in verse 1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what will he say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. What I will answer. It's interesting that Habakkuk says what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk is looking for an answer not only for himself, but also for all the others who will be asking him, since he's God's prophet, the very same question. Habakkuk was in the same position we often find ourselves in as Christians 
in a non-Christian society. Since we talk with God and they don't, they ask us to answer for God. Especially when something bad happens, especially when evil appears to be winning. Why is this happening, God? I don't understand, and people are asking me. God's response to Habakkuk is in the remainder of chapter 2. And Habakkuk's final response, which is in the form of a psalm, uh, complete with musical instructions, is in chapter 3. Chapter 2 is not particularly easy or comfortable to unpack. That might be why you don't often hear a sermon on Habakkuk. (laughs) But let's give it a go. In verses 2 and 3, God says, Write down plainly and permanently on tablets my timely and true response. It begins in verse 4 with a contrast between the unrighteousness of the Babylonians. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Between this unrighteousness of the Babylonians and the righteousness that God calls Habakkuk and his listeners to. But the righteous shall live by his faith. And then, in verse 5, back to the unrighteousness of the Babylonians. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man, who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, that is the grave. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. God is righteous, the very standard or definition of righteousness, actually. Yet, he can use both the righteous and the unrighteous in his righteous purposes. The righteous serve God's purposes through their trusting obedience to him, but the unrighteous can also serve God's purposes unwittingly, in spite of their disregard for God and his purposes. A famous case of this is Judas. God used unrighteous Judas in his righteous purpose, the saving of the world, through the cross of Christ. But the scriptures make it clear unrepentant Judas did not escape judgment. And in a similar way, although God allows the unrighteous Babylonians to punish Judah, the Babylonians will not escape judgment either. This is what the whole rest of chapter 2 is about. The wicked will not prosper. Despite appearances, the wicked will not prosper. And specifically, the Babylonians are going to get theirs. Verses 6 to 20 are five woes uh, spoken against the Babylonians specifically, but also against the wicked more generally. These five woes are expressed as taunts on the lips of the people the Babylonians have taken captive. 
So verse 6 starts with, shall not all these, and the word these refers back to the conquered peoples mentioned at the end of verse 5. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him, against the Babylonians, with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, and here I insert my paraphrase of the five woes. So here we go. Number one, verse six to eight. Woe to you Babylonians who pile up wealth for yourselves by extortion. Those you have plundered will rise up and plunder you. Number two, verses nine to 11. Woe to you, Babylonians, who try to buy security for yourselves with your ill-gotten gain. What you have done in wiping out other peoples will tell on you and bring shame on you and your descendants forever. Even the stones and beams of your dwellings will cry out against you. Number three, verses 12 to 14. Woe to you, Babylonians, who build your empire with violence and bloodshed. You burn up your energies and weary yourself for nothing, because all your glories will disappear under the floodwaters of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord that will cover the earth. Number four. Verses 15 to 17. Woe to you, Babylonians, who exploit peoples and the earth in your debauchery. You will be plunged into utter disgrace, and you will wake up with a throbbing hangover and be overwhelmed by the nightmares of the social and ecological abominations you have committed. And finally... Number five, verses 18 to 20. Woe to you, Babylonians, who make idols from silent and lifeless stone, wood, and cast metal. These are worse than useless. And instead, you're the ones who will be silenced, along with all the earth, before the one true living God, the Lord in his holy temple. In God's righteous order, the Babylonians' wicked actions sow the seeds of their own defeat, which God will bring about in time. But meanwhile, Habakkuk must wait, first for the judgment of Judah, as God gives them over to the brutal Babylonians, and then for the judgment of the Babylonians that God assures will come. And as Habakkuk waits, God speaks into this context these famous words. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith in God's words concerning what will ultimately happen to the Babylonians, who at any minute now will be bearing down on Jerusalem, torching the temple, and taking the people into exile. But more importantly, faith that God's great promise remains <coughs> through all these harrowing circumstances. And God will bring it to fulfillment in his time. The righteous shall live by faith. 
that God's promise remains, that the story isn't over. There is a bigger picture. In the final chapter, Habakkuk responds to God with a psalm. In it, he recalls with awe how God delivered justice in the past. Then Habakkuk resolves to wait in faith for what God has promised to do in the future. And although the wait will be a long and trying one, he also resolves not to despair, but to rejoice in the Lord. This is an expression of the faith by which God counted Habakkuk righteous. Now the book of Jeremiah records that God did in fact judge the Babylonians as he promised. Actually, Stephen and Hwasu and I read it for evening prayer uh, earlier this week. And there it is. All very much paralleling all those woes. So God did in fact judge the Babylonians as he promised Habakkuk he would do. But of course, that was not the end of evil. I wish it was. Any particular wicked person or regime or system does not last. But another always seems to replace it. Therefore, the much more or much more important than God's promise to judge the wicked is his great promise that goes to the root cause of wickedness. And that root cause is the hard hearts of us rebellious human beings. So in the working out of God's great promise at the right time, God sent his son Jesus among us. Jesus lived and died on the cross and rose and ascended and poured out his Holy Spirit so that by repentance and trusting in what he accomplishes at the cross, we might receive the Spirit by which our hearts are made new and our lives transformed. It's the cross plus the Spirit um, I knew that I wouldn't be allowed to finish my sermon today without saying that. <laughs> so now I have. So anyone here who's a visitor for the first time, um, every sermon for the last, I don't know, four months, maybe more, um, Keith always says, it's the cross plus the spirit. And of course, in the last 2,000 years, many have come to the cross and receive the Spirit. But also, many, many have not. At least not yet. And it still often seems like evil is winning. But God's promise remains. And the story isn't over. Because Jesus promised to return and set all things right sweeping away all unrighteousness, injustice, evil, sin, and everything that goes with them, like tears and pain and sickness and death. But when he does, 
everyone who is still a rebel will be swept away with these things. And so Jesus' delay is not out of a lack of compassion for those who suffer at the hands of evil. but out of compassion for the rebels who have not yet been saved, who have not yet come to the cross and received the Spirit. (coughs) The Bible says the following about Jesus' promise to come back and to set all things right. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I just want to conclude briefly by saying that if you are troubled or have been stirred up by anything that I've said today and would like to pray or talk about it, I'm going to hang around at the front after the service for a while. Please come and talk to me or to any of the other pastors. And now let us bless the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen.